Hey gang, welcome to Geeking Out, the podcast for collectors. I'm your host, Jeff French. I go by ETH Frenchie on Twitter. I'm the creator of the BPX Collective. And every week, we're going to bring you in-depth discussions with the industry's top experts, covering everything from sports cards to comics to TCGs and beyond. So sit back, relax, and join us as we geek out. And let's take your collection to the next level. Let's get started. All right, everyone, welcome back. I am excited today to be joined by uh, someone who is going to definitely do some geeking out with us. Uh, it is Brian Tinsman. And for those who may not know who Brian is, Brian is a, uh, he's a, a I, would, I don't want to misspeak exactly what your role is. Is it, would you call yourself a game developer, game mechanics built? Like what, what is the exact way you would classify like what your, how you define your, what you do? Yeah, my, my career has mainly been a game designer. And so that's like uh, someone who uh, comes up with the, the, the gameplay mechanics and the specifications basically when you work on a, a video game or, or even a tabletop game, um, you've got to write out all the things that you can do during the steps of the turn and, you know, uh, how combat works and then, like, all of the uh, the, the creatures and the dragons. And you take all that and uh, get art made for it and then uh, work together with the developers. So the designer would be in charge of creative gameplay mechanics and the developers would be in charge of, like, you know, making that into a... a a program doing doing the programming doing the data architecture all that stuff so i'm on the creative and game design side awesome and so brian actually has a book uh you won't be able to see it as a, but it's, it's called the uh the game inventors guidebook uh, i actually bought my copy here off of amazon so gave you a few bucks there through the through my amazon purchase brian mm -hmm. but um and 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 brian has spent time at uh, wizards of the coast and he was involved in uh some pokemon work some involved in some uh, magic sets really deep in really took take a, a very deep and and strong leadership role in mechanics of some of those sets love to dive into that and, and geek a little bit about his work there and then also brian is also a participant in web3 i know you i know brian owns a few codas uh i know we met through uh, mutual connections through other guild so i know you're involved in kind of the yuga ecosystem and just web3 at large um what what other what all stuff are you in as it relates to uh to web3 brian uh, quite a bit. So, uh, I was in, into, uh, a lot of tabletop games and online collectible games, uh, Magic Online and Pokemon Online, um, up through about 2011, 2012, and then moved into, uh, mobile games and worked on some of those, um, and, and also, uh, social games like, you know, Farmville and Cityville and stuff like that with, with Zynga and a whole bunch of their, uh, mobile games game applications uh which is worked on those or you mean you played those i i worked on those i did game design for them um yeah, yeah. With Zynga. oh yeah 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 one one of the biggest products they had was uh zynga poker and uh their economy was uh really having trouble because um so many people were getting their accounts hacked that a huge amount of currency of like this is virtual you know in-game currency was getting drained out of their system and so they you know they, they weren't able to balance their economy because their security was not good enough and so they said hey we need help uh changing the economic system so that uh, we can react and and tune it when we have like massive account hacks and, and things like this that are like disrupting what was the, all our what was the incentive for someone to hack were they just selling it on the gray market 
the the the, the virtual currency is that was that the incentive to hack the game? Yeah, uh, and hacking was really easy, and so some people did it just to be malicious. But yeah, I do think that there was a, a financial incentive there that that you could uh, hack somebody's account and then you know transfer the currency to your account and then uh, get some money for it. That's crazy. I didn't. I did not know. I mean, I did not know that. I mean, I was kind of at the intersection of when when the when the whole social graph and web web two was opening up and. Um, you know, I have some, some patents of work I did on that on the, the marketing side. And obviously I was, I was there as all the Zynga stuff was blowing up and Farmville was taking over Facebook and all that. And I remember Zynga poker, but I don't, I didn't, I didn't realize they were having those type of issues. That's not something that I was aware of. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one of those, that's one of those things where, you know, they're not going to publicize it. And, and it, it actually, you know, I certainly don't mean to disparage it. It was a good product for, uh, for, Many years and oh, absolutely, you know, but but it was going through uh, you know the growing pains. A lot of those games grew so fast during that time that uh, you know that they weren't quite ready for the level of success that that uh, they they had. So uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of what I did was um, economic systems balancing. And during um, the development of a game, you you've got to do like an economic model and and a simulation basically, so to make sure that like, you know, when a player reaches level ten, how much gold do they get? They need to have enough gold so that they can you know unlock the next chest and, uh, and the whole thing is balanced with the right amount of XP and and all that stuff. Um, and so we would basically uh, model all that out independently of the game, you know, whether the game exists or not. We have all the inputs, and then we simulate player behavior and get all the outputs, so we know, like, uh, you know, uh, how much XP should every encounter drop, and and that kind of thing. And that's turned out to be like super useful when crypto economics started to happen um, around uh, 2016, 2017 was when I got involved, and there quite a few projects that were like you know how much inflation should our our coin have and uh you know what what should the uh, unlock rate be for people who are staking and what should the transaction fees be in order to, so that we don't like overtax you know uh, uh ex make transactions too expensive and yet we you know we still have enough reward for all of the miners and stakers who and so like that stuff uh, was super fascinating to me, and I got pulled into uh, a few projects to do economic modeling and economic balancing, um, and got to work on some awesome stuff. Some uh, some early attempts uh, to do um, Web three uh, real estate and Web three e governance um, had had a, a super cool project where. Um, Native American tribal government uh, was doing some of their government uh, IDs using NFTs and uh, using uh, online tracking of, of voting because, um, you know, they're essentially uh, sovereign nations uh, according to the letter of the law, but not in practice. So, you know, having some tools that they can use to uh, help make their government more more easy and, and usable for their people will be, will be a big step forward for them. So that was super fa fascinating. And then lately, of course, uh, the last few years, everything has swung in the direction of uh, Web3 gaming. So 
back back to my uh, back to the, the, the place the place I love to be. Yeah, that's 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 a that's a pretty awesome uh, road to kind of go through there. So for so maybe let's um so as a lot of listeners may know, one of the big areas that we are branching into with the entire BPS collective is we're branching into the world of digital trading cards and trading card games. And one of the things that I am really passionate about is that I believe that we're going to be able to really kind of find some good middle ground where, because a lot of the trading card games have gotten so heady and they're so complicated to play that a lot of it, it does make it tough to like have games that you can sit and play with like the whole family. They're easy to pick up. And so that's one of the things that I've wanted to do as far as make sure that our games kind of span that continuum that go from easy all the way to really difficult. Um, but when you went in and you were like in a in a in a game development role, like let's let's go back and to the extent you can speak about it at Wizards, like what are some of the mandates there of like are are in the game space as a whole of 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 how the space views onboarding new players? Like you have these deep and rich lores, like in Magic the Gathering, which again I've said it before, I'm not a big Magic player, but I am a big Magic collector. I love the franchise of magic i love the early abu stuff but um it, it is a complicated game for someone new to pick up there's tons and tons of lore that's been unpacked for 20 30 years now um but like what are some of the big challenges that you faced in there as it related to not so much developing the game but trying to how did they think about it how did you think about it in your role onboarding growing the franchise and that sort of thing like how did how did you deal with some of those challenges when you were on that side of the fence yeah our, our onboarding new players is been uh, a big challenge for most uh, collectible card games, and it, it was a big challenge for most of uh, Magic's history. And uh, you know, the the rise of Hearthstone, I think, was a, a big wake up call um, to a lot of uh, CCG companies because Blizzard was able to put their expertise into a game that had a, a very fun and, and uh, you know, hand-holding and rewarding onboarding system. And that game is a bit simpler than Magic, but it, it's, you know, essentially a similar kind of gameplay system. Um, and it definitely does have, like, weird, um, you know, rules interactions that you, that you wouldn't expect, which is a hallmark of Magic and, and Pokemon sometimes. And Brian, um, if, I could, if I could real quick, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Hearthstone, for listeners that may not know, born out of the World of Warcraft lore and franchise, right? Isn't it part of that world as far as the, the I guess, the aesthetic and the flavor of the game? But then purely in digital, no no corresponding uh, physical cards, right? Just an online CCG, TCG. Is, is TCG a bad word? Because I say TCG because I'm a collector. That's just what I've always heard. But I know that everybody's in everybody that's in the industry says CCG, not TCG. Yeah, you, you, most people use them interchangeably. It doesn't really matter. I think like if you want to be a real stickler, you would say a CCG is something that doesn't focus on um, trading. It's more like uh, you know the type of game where you unlock a lot of cards in in your collection, as opposed to uh, one where there's a big marketplace and you can buy sell uh, those cards. So sorry, I didn't, it, it, yeah, it, it, don't don't worry. I, I didn't know if, I, if people would just label me as a complete noob because I, I'd say TCG because that's what I've always said. Um, but anyway, back to was, was if everything I said on Hearthstone, I just want to make sure because a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with Hearthstone. I just wanted to level set. 
Yeah, and you know, Hearthstone was made by Blizzard, right? The World of Warcraft people who are known for their polish, like every little object. It's just a it's just a card gaming table, but it has like you know you can customize the card backs, and there's a little palm tree there, and if you click on the coconut, it'll wiggle and drop off, and all of that is like has nothing to do with gameplay, but it's just so rich and responsive and fun and full of little Easter eggs. Like it just shows an incredible level of polish. And um, they were able to get the gameplay very consistently to like eight or 10 minutes a game. Whereas most other games, they allow the players so much freedom that uh, you don't know like if a game is going to last one minute or 40 minutes or 60 minutes, like it's very unpredictable. And so uh, Hearthstone soaked up a, a huge number of new game players. And uh, Wizards, I think, responded to that with Magic Arena. Uh, and again, like there was original version of online magic, uh, magic online. Um, I worked on that. I was the uh, lead producer on that, um, was, and that was, I, if not the first online digital collectible game, it was one of the first, right. That was like in the era of Oh three Oh four. Um, and, uh, it was very much like a, uh, a tabletop game type of experience. And then Hearthstone came and, ate its lunch uh, by having like, you know, the ground shakes when you play an earthquake spell and every uh, rare that you play like roars and or has some amazing visual effect. Like all that stuff was thought to be like a waste of effort. Uh, but Hearthstone proved that it was super valuable and, and really helped new players like get sucked into it. So Magic Arena started doing that stuff, and Magic Arena did a really good job, and it, it uh, massively brought in a new a new wave of Magic players. As prior to that, you kind of had a play had to have a play group. It's essentially impossible to learn one of these games just by reading the rules. Um, the the you know starter products are. They don't include everything you need to know, really. Uh, and the official rule book is 140 pages or something. You might as well, you know, take a college class if you want to. For magic? Magic, yeah. The, the the official comprehensive rules. It might be up even higher now. Um, I don't think I've ever seen that. Like, <laughs> yeah, that, I had no idea it was like that. <laughs> Let me see if I can pull it up right now. <laughs> That's crazy. Um yeah, so it's like the and and that's one of the big things that I've been trying to focus on because I I I want to be I want to make sure that what we're developing we are everything that we do and this what I do is I look at things from the mind of a collector first, and you and I had a conversation the other day and we we were walking down the road after we had some lunch and we were talking about like the revised list at Magic and I remember telling you that I was like you know I don't really grasp why magic players cling to caring so much about that revised list as it relates to the value of the cards because I literally do not care what Hasbro Wizards does today. It does not change for me one bit what a Alpha, Beta, or Unlimited, Black Lotus, or any of the Power Nine, or any of those rare cards, or hell, the commons for that matter, in high-grade good condition to me as a collector, I don't care that they reprint the card. And I, I use the, the, the point that in, in sports cards, Mike Trout, he has one Bowman Chrome autograph rookie card that is like the de facto rookie card. 
and everybody would want that. And it's the it's it's actually his prospect card. And on top of that, Trout has thousands and thousands of cards that you can get a Mike Trout card, but it doesn't impact that one. And yet, it's just so. My point in that bit of rambling is just how drastically different these player bases are in the the games with this level of complexity and like they just they is it is it just that they even this old expensive stuff they still really and truly view it as a game piece so there that is that has to be the core of why they care some revised list right because it's it, they think if the game piece is rare I'll pay more for it because I want to put it in a deck that's my deck and I want to play with it versus me as a collector what makes me care about it is that it was rare when it was made I don't care if it gets reprinted doesn't bother me a bit I'll still pay top dollar for the early one because that's the that's the one I want to collect that's the rookie card like is that how how do you reconcile those kind of mindsets is have you thought any more about that since we had that conversation the other day you think I'm still mm -hmm. off my rocker uh, I mean, uh, it's a different mindset, and and for sure, like uh, magic players will see magic cards as uh, not just a cool collectible. Uh, that that's some of it, but uh, largely it is a, a game piece that allows you know certain abilities in the game that there's no other way to get. And and there's actually quite a few re like really nice uh, case studies uh, that you can look at for you know twenty years. There was. Uh, a card called Imperial Recruiter that was super low supply from a very early set and it was 800 bucks, something like this, uh, you know, creeping up close to a thousand bucks and then uh, was reprinted in several sets afterwards and super popular, quite, you know, quite powerful for a certain type of deck, a certain type of deck, like we'll absolutely play, play that. Uh, so high demand, low supply, it got reprinted and then now the price is down to, you know, five bucks or something like that, just because there's so right. many of them out there. It's, it's easy to find one if you want it. Um, and the original ones um, are not that much more than the reprinted ones. That, actually, let, let me find out. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at a, a website called uh, Scryfall right now, which lets you compare uh, various printings of uh, magic cards. I spend a little bit of time on Scryfall. Yeah, so and the, then, uh, go ahead. Yeah, so the the original printing of Imperial Recruiter that's one hundred and fifty dollars, but uh, yeah, a, a typical one is five or six bucks. Um, so that you know that tells you, and and for most of its lifetime, it was you know above five hundred dollars. Uh, $800, maybe more. Um, so yeah, the, the price, the price got crashed by the reprints. Yeah. That's, and it's just, a, it's a real weird phenomenon for me as a collector and, and it really, I haven't seen it in the, the stuff that I've been collecting. Cause I think most of it is in the hands now of collectors and, um, that really earliest of magic stuff, the alpha, the beta, the unlimited stuff is really in those early hands. And then Pokemon too. I mean, obviously Pokemon, they've reprinted Charizard God knows how many times in different forms, but his rookie card is still the the 1999 base set first edition, unless you want to go back to the one from Top Sun, the Japanese version, but his the, the, obviously the most desired one, and he's been reprinted a ton. So it's just an interesting thing. It was an interesting takeaway for me, something that I I just really found that's it's a really unique way that that pocket of collectors view their 
their game pieces from a collectability standpoint versus a gameplay standpoint. It was just something that really has jumped out to me. And when you and I just had that conversation, so I just thought it'd be interesting. Yeah, no, I, I think I think you can you can almost like uh, make a continuum of how important the collecting aspect is. Like, you know, on the one side you've got um, magic cards where a reprint will cr- crash the price. On the other side, you've got you know sports cards and uh, a, a, a reprint won't won't touch the price of the uh, of the old desirable cards. And Pokemon's kind of in the middle, right? Like you you've got. Uh, Reprints of Charizard don't affect the price too much of uh, the original Charizard, but you know reprints of other like currently high demand played cards will impact the price. You know in the, in like forty fifty dollar card range. Yeah, it might be. It might. And be I think that's. I'm sorry. Oh, I was gonna say. Yeah, I was gonna say that I I think that uh, it's it's. Largely a function of gameplay because there's a lot of Pokemon collectors who just want to collect and have have the best cards that there are, and then there's other ones who want to play. And so you know if you if you say Pokemon uh, fans are 50-50 collectors and players, the marketplace kind of seems to reflect that. Yeah, I think that might be th- there. May be a realization for me is that once it achieves an escape velocity from a collectability standpoint, where it breaks free of gameplay, like the Black Lotus clearly is. I mean, hell, you can't even use it in gameplay, I guess, unless what one obscure format or I guess. So it, it has moved into the realm of collectability. And I know people would lose their absolute minds, but I don't know that Magic, if they made a new Black Lotus, I mean, like the Lotus Petal card, that's like you know, the poor man's Lotus or whatever. Like, But I, I don't think you have, like, I, there's just nothing in the world that they could do that makes me value my... ABU Black Lotus is less than I do now. Like, it's just, I don't know. But it's just an interesting thing. I don't want to get stuck on that. But it's just a, a and so, like, when you think about what, what we're going to try to do, we're going to try to operate at this unique intersection where I want the gameplay to be incredibly accessible. So the people that really just think that these things should be game tokens, fine. That's what I want to do is give you easy access to game tokens. And then I want to take some tried and true learn things we've learned from sports cards to make them more collectible with rare parallels and and that sort of thing. Maybe if if you don't mind, I'd love to kind of uh, take a moment and let 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 me pick your brain a little bit on what you saw because you've seen some behind the scenes now with our game Bantam Brigade. And so for those that don't know, Bantam Brigade is uh, our first CCG TCG release. We've put some first edition cards out to our kind of our OG community. Those are available on OpenSea Bantam Brigade. You can get them in sealed packs where you haven't revealed the, car- the the card yet. And then there are revealed cards that are available. They're available in different color parallels. And what I've tried to stress on everyone is that this is a, a, a franchise that you can play even if you are the most casual of gameplay people. You can If you can play Uno or hell, if you can play Go Fish or War, Paper, Rock, Scissors, you can play this game. It's literally simple to that level. It's got a little bit of strategy in it and how you place your cards, but overall it's dead simple. It takes two minutes to understand it and you can play it. And then from there, we're going to make an expanded, much more complicated version to hopefully attract the more people that are a little bit more TCG native that that, that crave a deeper, more immersive experience, a more, a more unique deck building experience. And then also what I am hoping is that maybe some people that have never made the jump into a TCG because they start at that base level, like for me, 
going from the base level game to the expanded, it's a it it is like a stepping stone. Like you you can just stay on that bottom step if you want, but if you do want to step up, you do understand the key dynamic of you how you win lose the game, and I think that then makes all the effects and the artifacts and that sort of thing play much more simple. But if you don't mind, and feel free, don't pull any punches. Um, I'd love to kind of get your thought on what you've seen with Bantam Brigade. And I, I think a lot of our listeners are people that probably own those cards. And I'm sure they would love to have someone of your experience tell them what you think of it. Yeah, I think it's it's quite a good and fresh approach to have something that starts out simple and then uh, can add complexity and add strategic choice uh, as as the player wants to later on. Um, and that's kind of that kind of plays to a, a strength of uh, CCGs in general, in that um, when you first start out, you only may maybe have ever you know seen fifteen twenty cards and you know what they do. And as you play more games, you're exposed. Oh, what does that card do? What does that card do? And then oh, you know, after you've been playing for a while, suddenly you know a uh, uh, hundred cards by the back of your hand without like really trying hard, right? Each each moment that you learned what a new card does and saw a different strategy, saw a different way, oh, this can bu- you know buff that one and then debuff the enemy when you play them in order. And then you know you remember that to try to look for it the next time you see it. it a really a really good example of this is uh, Plants vs. Zombies, which was partially inspired by magic. Um, the the first level of that is like you you just get sunflowers and you collect sun and that's it and then like the next level you get a a pea shooter and you got to figure out how to intersperse those with your sunflowers uh and by the time you've done 40 or 50 levels you know 40 or 50 units without having even you know tried to learn anything they just came as part of gameplay the learning is the gameplay so uh, i think you know most ccgs will start out pretty complicated pretty sophisticated because they want to have a lot of rules and then every card you know breaks a different rule in some way and that's why you want to like keep experimenting to see what happens when you break the basic rules um and uh i i think the the game um that uh you've got with uh bantam brigade starts from an easier place so it's going to be more accessible to more people it's going to be accessible you know to to kids and people who are sort of like casual gamers um and then they can um you know increase the interest in strategy and complexity uh as as they like as they want so i i uh i quite like that approach yeah and the, the um one of the things that kind of warmed my heart a bit is when you were talking, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but you said that the that the base gameplay left a lot of room in the design space for a lot of effects, a lot of artifacts, a lot of those things. And so I guess in your mind, you kind of see a path that that can you know, be something that really does eventually with add-ons and more complicated effects. In your opinion, you think we're going to be able to challenge people that want a challenging gameplay experience to go? I think everybody understands we've got simple. We've showed the community how spec deck works. So they, if they, if you haven't seen that video, folks, you can hop in Discord. That is posted in the BPS Collect Discord, and you can see us having a little tournament in the Spec Deck version. Um, but I know we've had a lot of people asking, "Okay, that's cool. I like that. I like the fact that we're starting simple." But are you really going to be able to make this game challenge me? Um, and uh, and what's your thought on that? Do you think we're going to be able to kind of kind of get there? Yeah, I think. Um... 
when you are a game designer, you kind of have a responsibility to look to the future and say like, okay, some years down the road, you know, we, if this was really successful, we will have had to have published, you know, 500 different cards or, you know, skills or abilities or things like to be, uh, of good variety of different deck strategies. Um, uh, and, you know, you can think about other games like, um, you know, it, a lot of people are familiar with the the Pokemon um, DS, a Nintendo game, right? Where you are facing off and you kind of have like this RPG experience and you go to combat and they could have just said uh, attack or defend and then uh, had a winner and a loser. But um, that kind of thing doesn't allow enough different variety of Pokemon to, to shine individually. And so having choose a skill, take a turn, the other guy gets a skill, you get to respond to it. Now you can have lots of special abilities. You can have stun and paralyze and confusion and uh, retreat and heal and all those all those different strategic choices that you can combine, right? And you're, you, you learn over time that uh, the heal plus confusion, like, oh, these work extremely well together because I can, uh, you know, keep the enemy from ever attacking. So that's the kind of thing we're looking for with uh, with phantoms, and I think that uh, there there's enough space there um, to be able to add in those kinds of uh, extra layers or extra steps of complexity uh, to to have a good variety of card types. That's, yeah, so I'm, I mean, this obviously is something that I'm very much looking forward to fleshing out, seeing it all come to life. I'm looking forward to this year's National Sports Card Collector Show. We're going to have our first tournament for the community. There'll be some nice BPX prizes paid out in that. Uh, those that are holding better collections of the Bantons. When I say better, that's obviously clearly subjective. I guess what I should say is rare. People that have more rare collections, rare rainbows and that sort of thing, you'll get invited into some uh, aspects of the tournament that are that the payouts will be even better. And like I've told everybody, you can choose to play or you can choose to delegate. And like that would be, that would be something that, that's another thing, Brian. I, we didn't really talk about that much when you were in town. You may not even know this, um, but one of the main things that we want to do in our gameplay, because again, I'm trying to think about this from a collector's mindset and to form a good thesis for myself and other collectors on why do I want to collect these things. And what we have said is, is that a lot of times the people that are the most rich in time that can play the game and become the best at it, maybe they don't have the ability to buy some of the most expensive game, game pieces, the collectible pieces. And so, and for those that collect at the highest level that can pay $5,000 for something that's, you know, a, a white uh, chaos of, of, of Blivy or Nightstorm or one of the characters, they're not necessarily, they don't have the time to play the game so in depth. So what they'll be able to do is they'll be able to delegate someone to play in their space and then they will be able to split the prize money from that. So if there is a hypothetical million BPX tournament and there's only 16 white chaoses that have been pulled, and you have to have one of those to to get in, immediately you kind of have an idea of what that seat is worth in that tournament. You know, if you're and then you want to find a good person to put in that seat. And so if you're the collector that's got that expensive card, now you're out talking to the market saying, Hey, you're really good. How about you come over here and play for me and I'll give you 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 can take 80% of the prize and I'll just take 20. And then people almost bid on some of those better players. Um, and that'll even get more and more, I think, as the as the expanded version comes where we really begin to separate 
the players from the pretenders, right? The, the spec deck version is very simple, has a little bit more elements of luck involved in it, um, whereas the expanded version will be a lot more head-to-head. -head. But that's, just to let you know, that's one of the things. So it'd be kind of cool if if, uh, if Wizard said, we're going to have a big tournament and anyone who owns a an ABU Lotus, you can come and participate in this or you can send someone to play in your stead. I'd send someone because I wouldn't be able to play. So I'd be calling you, Brian, saying, hey, you want to go play in my place? <laughs> so but anyway, that's just one thing that uh, I'll let people know. So if you're a collector out there and you're thinking, well, I don't know if I'll go really deep down that rabbit hole. Um, what we're trying to do is we're really trying to form the Bantam Brigade to be collector first and then really have the gameplay uh, to be something that is a really good companion for it. We want really good, robust gameplay. And we want people who would not necessarily feel like they have a player connection to Pokemon or Magic to feel like they can still participate here through this delegation model, even if you don't want to play yourself. And that's something that we're pretty excited about. So that's enough about Bantos. Let's dovetail back to a little bit because I do want to unpack. I just, I just want to say it's it's kind of funny to think that, you know, it's the uh, Formula One car owner uh you know, is is not the driver, and and it, they're they're looking through all of the rosters of the drivers, trying to find somebody to team up with. So, I can you know imagine uh, card players uh, start to build their reputation, and then all the uh, card owners are like looking at their stats, looking at their scores. Hey, you want to come play for me on my team? It's it's fun to imagine. That's exactly that. That it really is fun to imagine. We have a long way to go to get there. And again, I don't think you know spec deck is not going to really separate that as much as the expanded version will. But once we get to expanded. It will be very clear after a certain number of gameplay hours who's really good and who's maybe not as good, right? I think that'll very much surface and we'll have, and then it'll be really interesting to see how those, how many of those players invest in the cards to play for themselves versus how many of them, they, they go drive for another F1 owner. And then the fact that those top tier collectible cards, because they grant entry into those, those tournaments, I think that you'll get a really, it'll be really fun to have my player competing against your player. And we're kind of like that team owner. Like that's, I don't know, man, like it's fun to imagine. Like you said, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited about that because, and the reason that we've kind of put that up to the forefront is because I get, I'm not a Pokemon player. Like this is just another element that if Pokemon had this, or if magic had this, it would make me collect a whole lot more. If I if this was a mechanic that they had in, in native to their their world, like I would love to go be a Magic the Gathering team owner, but that doesn't that doesn't really exist. I mean, I guess I could always go spot someone into a tournament and pay their fee, but it's just not the same. Like uh, this is a little bit it's because it creates a little bit more exclusivity around the collectability, which I think is really cool. So, um, so going back to your time at, at Magic, what was the what was some of the the sets that you were you were involved in? Because I was actually looking here. Uh, I got a text a little while ago from Heritage Auctions, and they have just launched a sealed wax auction, and they've got some early Magic sets. And if any of these are ones you've worked on, I'll probably drop some bids on a couple of these. They've got some sealed booster boxes, but uh, what were some of the sets that you worked on while you were on the on Magic? Oh wow, uh, I was uh, I, I worked on a lot, but I I was like lead designer, so you know, kind of like project project creative lead uh, for. Time Spiral, uh, Kamigawa, uh, Rise of the Eldrazi, uh, Avacyn, uh Restored. So what year? Judgment. What year were you there? Uh, let's see. I was there. Um, 
97 through 2011 and uh i i took some uh some breaks in the middle there so that wasn't con continuous but to about 10 years total so were you there for weatherlight i was there yeah i was not on that uh, development team but i was at the company when it launched i got a lot of weatherlight packs <laughs> and then um visions was that one that you were there for <clears throat> yeah i didn't i didn't work on it though odyssey didn't work on it just trying to find out. Well, we, I can circle back up. I don't want to bore people on the podcast. <laughs> I also don't want people to bid against me either. Um, <laughs> there's some cool. There's some cool booster boxes available here. What was your favorite? What was a, your favorite one that you worked on? Um, and then, and then maybe what? Why was it your favorite? Uh, my favorite was Rise of the Eldrazi, and uh, that was kind of like a a milestone in uh, a, a new type of uh, gameplay for Magic. And uh, they they call it uh, battle cruiser magic after the tradition of StarCraft that like uh, really good players are super efficient and start attacking right away, but like casual players, uh, bad players, they just all retreat and they start working on the the biggest unit that they can possibly build in StarCraft. It's called a battle cruiser, and then they just send all their battle cru cruisers to the center of the board and have a giant free for all. And so we we kind of tried to emulate that in in this magic set. Uh, you know, normal normal creatures have like you know four or five power, and we wanted to have creatures that have like ten power, twelve, fifteen power, all all smashing against each other, um, which is kind of a delicate balancing act uh, because you have to set up defenses long enough for people to build up their resources to make these giant creatures. Um, but those defenses can't be so strong that uh, you know they last the whole game because the game will last forever if they do that. So you, you got you got to have defenses that are short-term defenses that crumble. And so we were able to set up that kind of a gameplay system really well. And then the creative aspect of it was uh, the Eldrazi are these uh, kind of uh, Cthulhu-type uh, creatures from another dimension that nobody could understand, and they're like spanning through multiple dimensions at once and everything they touch just like turns to dust because they consume the life energy of it. And so um, there's a massive, uh, massive battle between the, the creatures of, uh, like the nature and the, the, the planet and all the, the humans of the world versus these, you know, strange insect uh, alien beings. Uh, it was super wonderful. It played great. Fans loved it. I loved it. Yeah, as I know, again, it's the I, it's not a set that I have previously collected, but I do know that it is one that uh, is 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 very uh, very highly regarded and, and well thought of, which is which is cool that you have that kind of to go back to. I was just looking; there are the only boxes I can find. There, are, uh, there's one I can make a blind offer on from through Heritage to their small bought it at auction before, but I'll keep my eyes open for that. Sure, and yeah. if I can uh, score a box of that, I'll definitely definitely try to do so. Um, time, time time spiral is really good too if you can uh, pick. If you ever ever see that, I like. I recommend Time Spiral. So, what from your uh, what from your collection do you uh, do you like the most? It doesn't have to be the most. Like some of my favorite collectibles that I have, frankly, are not the most expensive ones. Some of the ones that I have a, a thesis in for like a store of value, they're not necessarily my favorite thing. Some of my favorite stuff. So, so you don't have to just be like your most expensive thing. But like, what do you what do you consider kind of some of your favorites on the collectible side? And it would be magic or whatever. It doesn't have to be yeah. Um, 
I've got uh, a Chaos Orb, which uh, is a magic card that uh, it sort of like breaks normal gameplay rules in that. Oh, yeah, I know. I know Chaos Orb. You've got to flip yeah. it over the yeah. table. Yeah. yeah, you physically you physically hold it over the table and then you drop it onto the table, which like, uh, it's, uh, you know, not everybody's going to be able to do that. And it also has like incentives to, okay, now the other player has an incentive to spread his cards to every corner of the table so that it's harder for you to hit his card. It's like these things that you don't think of when you're making the, the card, these uh, like ripple effects. And so they discontinued that kind of thing. Uh, but of course, you know, it, it, there's a legend around it that somebody actually, you're supposed to drop the card from above the table, whatever it touches gets destroyed. So somebody ripped the card into a hundred little pieces and sprinkled them all over the table and destroyed the yeah. entire, entire enemy uh, army. And uh, it, it's just, uh, did that really happen? It, like, was there a judge? Like, a, you know, you, you have super experienced judges in all these tournaments. And, did a judge come over and say, yes, that's acceptable? Or no, that's not. Like, how do they make that decision? I'm super fascinated by those rules. Yeah, and did they, get disqual- did they get disqualified for not having a regulation deck after they did that? Yeah, right, exactly. It would have been one card short, right? Yeah, um, yeah Chaos Orb is a cool card. There's only... Uh, in uh, Alpha, there's only two PSA 10s of that. And I actually was just trying to get one about two weeks ago. I'm pretty sure I, it was just me and one other person. And at least it felt like you can kind of feel in some of these auctions when you get an extended, is it, is it you and multiple people? And you don't always know, obviously, but it's sometimes it has that feel of, yeah, this is just me and one other dude. And uh, we, we battled out on that card. I, I, I pushed him up all the way over. I want to say I was out. I think I don't think I dropped out of that card until I want to say 10 or 11K. And, uh, and he ended up, I let him have it cause it was so far above where anything had comped. I knew that as soon as I bought it, it would be, it's like one of those things where you drive the car off the lot. Like if, if you get yourself in that bidding war and it's just you and one other bidder, if that guy then isn't there next time you want to sell it, they're, they're, you just, boom, you're, you're dead because you don't have, nobody else is there willing to pay that much. So, um. But yeah, there's a strong comp now on Chaos Orb for you there, and at least in PSA 10 grade. How how much does the do you do you see? Is, is your Chaos Orb is it is it graded or is it raw? I've never had any of my Magic cards graded. Okay, so do you do you guys that are more like into which most Magic players seem to be? Does does the graded market influence that raw market much? Do you, do you do you guys pay much attention to that or you're really just looking at like buy lists out of stores and that sort of thing and like like how does a sale like that on Chaos Orb being that high does it push the value of the raw ones up or um, yeah I, 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 for sure it does and but I think that uh, people you know there is a social prestige to being able to uh, slap it on the table in a game. And if you have a, a card that's, you know, worth a uh, thousand or two thousand dollars, everybody kind of leans over clusters around there. Is that real? What? Hey, oh my gosh. Like, that's like a, uh, a, a, so a, a wonder, a, what a wonderful social moment for whoever collected that card. Uh, but, but, you know, once so it's that's a, so there there is a part of the reason then why you would hate reprints, right? So to go back to what I said earlier, like that that's why. Like you probably are just that's pro- because it like you don't have that in sports cards. Like nobody throws their Mike Trout Bowman Chrome Auto on a table to play it in a game. 
Mm. Like you collect it just to collect it. So sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that just kind of that that that's the reason why if I'm a magic player and I've got a thousand dollar card and they reprint it, and now the guy down that's got it for two dollars down three tables down, he plays it. If everybody's not gonna ooh and awe over my card anymore, then I'm pretty pretty not happy about that, I guess, as a player. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely true in a, a lot of games. You know, I'm thinking back to like the World of Warcraft, uh, people who had like the uber legendary armor uh, would very often just like hang around the uh, the new player area so that people would cluster around them and be like, where did you get that armor? How did you get it? You know, they could like be a little minor celebrity there. And that was, that was like part of the value of the game. Like they've been playing for five or 10 years and, and you know, they've done everything there is to do, but the, the thing that keeps them around is like uh, showing off their collection. It's like that meme where the guys over the corner is like, they don't even know that I have the such and such warlock suit or whatever. Like it's pretty. Yeah. But we, we like, um, kept track of um, in, engagement metrics uh, really extensively in things like uh, Farmville type of games. And if uh, if somebody came and did something on your farm or saw your farm and and you and you get the notification that so and so came by and like you know they helped water your your corn or something like that, engagement went way up. Like if I know that somebody came to my farm and they saw all of my little, creative uh layout that i worked on like i'm much more likely to come back the next few days this week to see if anybody else came and saw my work and that's very motivating to have that that social uh approval or or social engagement from other people so yeah so if if uh if OpenSea would notify us when people go to our profile and look at our nfts that we've got set there like 10 people viewed your featured nfts this week that would give people a feeling of pride that I'm I'm not just doing this for myself. People are actually looking at this and I've been validated as a collector that social signaling becomes stronger to them. That 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 would be something that could pour over probably pretty easily. Yeah. 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 We will have to think about that as we uh expand our marketplaces and stuff. So well, Brian, I very much appreciate your time. I certainly appreciate you coming on here and geeking out with us a little bit. Uh really excited to continue to talk to you and um on the stuff that we're building and really appreciate the the level of insight that you're able to bring and the things that you've learned over the years and just uh, certainly uh, incredibly valuable. And I really appreciated geeking out with you. And uh, maybe uh, once some things begin to shape up, we'll be able to come back and uh, do this again. And maybe we can uh, even talk a little bit more about the uh, more expanded version of, of Bantam Brigade and some other things we're doing next time around. But thanks so much. And I hope you have a, a, a great rest of your day. Yeah, sounds great. Thanks a bunch. Uh, privileged to talk to you all and see you next time. Thanks a lot, man. Take care. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening to another episode of Geeking Out, the podcast for collectors. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button to stay up to date on all things related to collecting. Remember, new episodes are coming every week. So until next time, keep geeking out.